Well, it's the Scripture that bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. The Scripture does such a marvelous job of instructing us and teaching us and helping us when we're in a place of doubt or when our understanding is not quite what it ought to be. And uh, this morning, as we look into Luke chapter 24, uh, you can grab your copy of Scripture, open to Luke 24. You find that on page 1218 in the Pew Bible in front of you. As we are uh, just about to finish up the Gospel of Luke, so probably next week we'll uh, finish this Gospel up. And what a great journey it's been. And uh, we're looking at this text where uh, Jesus comes up on the road to Emmaus alongside two disciples as they're walking from Jerusalem on this seven-mile stretch of dirt road to this place called Emmaus. And so I want to read beginning in verse 13 and sort of set the context for all that we're going to look at today. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. Read with me. The scripture says, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, well, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, whom was a a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Verse 22, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman said, and him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, In all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening. And the day is far spent, and he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, and he took bread, he blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the Scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. 
And those whom were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told them about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, Lord, to help us, to help us gain wisdom and insight this morning from this passage of your holy word. God, we receive it as the gift that it is perfect and inerrant given from you to us. And Lord, thank you for the great purpose it can serve in our hearts this morning. If you'll grant us ears to hear and eyes to see, God, disclose the glory of your son Jesus to us this morning through the working of the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's really remarkable when you think about what's going on here, just from the fact that Luke, who is writing this, also is the author of the book of Acts, where we find in the first chapter of Acts, he gives the just really the amazing description of all of the the scores of people that Jesus revealed himself to in the 40 days that he was uh, here after his resurrection, just ministering among people. And so it's amazing that in his gospel, he only chooses just a, a few little events to, uh, to place here for our instruction, where he, he, could have, he could have added three or four chapters to the end of his gospel, but he didn't choose to do that. And so uh, there's a, there must be a very remarkable reason why this particular passage and this story of Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus is recorded here, because you could really... It, this could dozens and dozens and dozens of different scenarios uh, recorded in Scripture of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, uh, revealing himself to various people. But here we have this very, very interesting passage of Scripture. Now, Luke is really the only gospel that tells us this story completely. Mark does allude to it only with a few short verses, but Luke is the only one that really tells us this story. And it's a fascinating story. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Bible. I've uh, long been looking forward to us looking at this this morning. And really the challenge before us this morning is to be able to just see clearly and not get lost in, in all of the things that the Scripture could teach us this morning. Because really uh, there's, there's uh, so many different things going on here and there's so many principles that can be pulled out of here. But what we want to do is let the Spirit of God just lead us this morning so that we don't get uh, lost in everything that's here and that we only focus on what God would have us to see this morning and, and to work in our lives. And so, uh, you know, I guess the first thing that I've thought about in these weeks preceding our time together this morning is just how... Uh, how easy it is for us at times to be in uh, proximity of someone and not even realize who's around us. You know, in other words, to to just be uh, talking to someone and not know really who you're talking to or to be talking to someone else about something and not realize who's standing around listening. And uh, there's always uh, uh, makes me smile thinking of all the funny stories of the times in which uh, I've been uh, in, engage with people and uh, they have no idea who I am and the things that they say are just remarkable. I, uh, I was thinking yesterday about, uh, I mean, I probably have a thousand of these stories, but here's a couple of them. I was thinking yesterday about a time that I, I went to someone's house and I was sharing the gospel with them and 
I'm sitting there talking to them about the Lord. And uh, they said to me, well, sir, I, I, I'm grateful that you've come by today. Uh, actually, uh, the reason I was there, by the way, was one of their family members had asked me to go visit them. So I'm sitting there sharing the gospel. And they said, well, I'm so grateful that you come. But I assure you uh, that, but, that I'm, I'm fine and, and I'm a Christian and, I, and I, I go to church. I'm in church every Sunday. And I said, well, well, what church do you go to? And they said, well, I go to Michael Memorial with my relatives. <laughs> now, hold on a minute. It's possible. I mean, you know, there, there. It's a big church. There's a lot of you in here. So, I mean, there, there's people who are here that I maybe necessarily haven't seen yet, right? So that's still possible. So I said, "Well, great. That's an awesome church, man. I mean, they got the best preacher I've ever heard." And I, so I said, "I'm the pastor." And the look on their face totally gave it away. You see, they could have played along. But when I told them I was the pastor and they kind of went like this, I thought, well, there you go. There you go. I was talking to a guy who was just out at a restaurant and I was talking to a guy maybe about a year ago. And I was waiting for a table and so I was sitting there and he sat down and we struck up a conversation. So we started talking about uh, this, that and the other. And then he was started telling me his problems and uh, some things he was struggling with. And so I started asking him some questions. And, and I, uh, I said, you know, you should, should uh, you know, are you, are, you, are you in a church family? Are you a Christian? You know, I, don't, I would never want to go through difficulties in my life and not be part of a church family. It's so important to have people around you to care for you in a difficult time. And, and he said, oh, yeah, I, I am. I I go out there to Michael Memorial. And I said, really? He said, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a, uh, it's a little church. You know, it's kind of out in the country. And I said, huh. And uh, it dawned on me that it had been a long time since he drove down John Clark Road. And I said, you know, I, I heard that they built a couple buildings, you know, in the last decade or so, you know, and uh, he said, oh, yeah, 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 they did. They built a new uh, a new building. And uh, I said, yeah, now, now I, I got to confess this. And I, I'm really not this bad, but sometimes I am. And I said, you know, they the the thing is, though, why they put that red carpet in there? It looks weird. And he said, I like it. I mean, see, see, it's important to know who you're talking to. You know what I'm saying? Because it just doesn't, it's, it's not good. You know, these, we got a, some young men right here. Let me give you some good advice, okay? Whenever you uh, uh, go over to a, a young lady's house for the very first time to meet her parents, only say what's necessary. <laughs> Don't be a, a chatterbox. Is it's going to backfire, I can assure you. Uh, we, last weekend, my family got together, uh, my wife's family, and we all uh, got together and spent the weekend together in Florida. We do that once a year. And so 
was able to be around her brother and her brother's kind of a, a crazy guy and he, and he uh, talks a lot and this would be the perfect illustration for him is just talking when you shouldn't uh, uh, say something. And Lisa was reminding me of the story that when he went over to uh, his wife's house for the very first time to meet her parents. Now, this is, you know, a big moment. He didn't know he was going to marry her and, and spend the rest of his life with her, but it was, it was still a big moment. And he goes over to meet her parents and uh, they started talking about somebody that they, uh, a mutual friendship that they had uh, and who had just had a baby. And so my brother-in-law says, yeah. And they named the baby Frank. Who names a baby Frank? You don't name a baby Frank. Like, what do you say? Oh, look, it's little Frank. Like, that's just a weird name. No, no, no. And then her dad walks in and he says, hello, sir, I'm Dale. He says, hi, I'm Frank. <laughs> Sorry, Frank. That was him, not me. I'm just telling the story. But the point is, you want to know who's around you before you start talking. You want to know who's in proximity. You want to be paying attention. Now, this passage of Scripture right here is, is going to uh, teach us a, a lot of things this morning. And quickly, I, I just want us to see five words that will sort of frame your understanding of what God would show us out of this passage of Scripture. The first one is execution. The first word is execution. I want you to notice in verse 19, uh, So they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and who, whose word before God and all the people, and, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. I want you to see that as these disciples are walking away from Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus, their, their whole world has just been shattered. And when Jesus comes up and he, he begins to ask them, hey, well, what's going on? What are you talking about? There's no doubt about the death of Jesus. In other words, there's no speculation that, well, maybe he's not dead. Maybe he... They already know the report of the women that the, the tomb was empty. They already know all that information which is recorded here. But yet notice, he's crucified in their mind. He's dead. They, they've got that part down. There's no doubt about the fact that he's dead. And yet their lives are filled with despair. You see, a, a life without a resurrection can only lead to despair. It can only lead to despair. No matter who you are, no matter what circumstances you've been born into, no matter how good things seem to always go for you, at some point in time, life is going to become difficult for every person. It's going to become uh, more than you thought you'd ever have to bear. And in those moments, if, you, if, if, if there's no resurrection, then what is there? There can only be despair. Only be despair. If you've ever spent time uh, in, in ICU with unbelieving family, you, you understand it is so radically different. We, we, we have some, uh, some ICU nurses in our fellowship, and, and you ask them. You know, you, you go in the ICU, and there's all these rooms, and you go around, and it's sort of like a horseshoe. And uh, you can walk along. And I mean, you, you know, the, they're the sickest of the sick people in the hospital. Their, their life is in balance here. And, and so when you walk through there, you, you can see so many different things going on in those rooms. And the rooms, 
I've spent so much time in the intensive care unit that I could probably tell you walking through there just by walking by, I could almost tell you which rooms have believing uh, families gathered around their loved one and which one don't because the the hopelessness and the despair of those who do not know the Lord and do not have the hope of the resurrection is so evident and prevalent and and that gets multiplied a thousand times over in a circumstance or a situation like maybe a funeral. Oh, the, the funerals that I've done for unbelieving families are just so painful. So painful. And their grief is so evident and so outward. And the way they express it is so very different from the grief that we feel. And certainly we feel grief and loss and separation, no doubt. But it's very, very different. See, a life without a resurrection leads to despair. Notice back in verse 13. Now, behold, the two of them, they were traveling the same day on the village to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. So they're talking about all these things that have happened. So it was that while they conversed and they reasoned, they're going back and forth about these things have happened, but why have they happened? And what do they mean? And what are we going to do with this? And how are we going to go forward? I mean, they're trying to, they're hashing things out. This is an intense dialogue. This isn't some chit-chat. This is about how are we going to move forward? What's tomorrow now going to hold? They're struggling through some life issues here. And Jesus drew near and he went with them, but their eyes were restrained and they did not know him. And notice what he says to him. He says, well, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, here's, here's what I want you to see first off. That notice they don't respond to Jesus. Well, what makes you say I'm sad? How do you know that I'm sad? In other words, they're sad. Their heads are downcast. They're bummed out. They're in despair. They're moping along and they're trying to figure out how are we going to go forward? And Jesus says, well, what kind of conversation is this? And you're so sad. And they, they realize it's obvious that they're sad. And of course he can see that they're sad. Then verse 18, then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which had happened these uh, there in these days you see they recognize they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus Jesus is not coming the other way now if he was coming the other way it would make sense that he didn't know what was going on because maybe he was an outsider heading to Jerusalem for the first time but that's not the case you see he's coming from Jerusalem so how could you have been anywhere around Jerusalem and not realize what had happened this would be like someone literally this would be like someone who lives in New York, the three days after 9-11, saying, well, what are you talking about? I didn't hear anything about any planes or any buildings or I don't know what you mean. It's unconscionable that they wouldn't recognize, they wouldn't know. I mean, the whole, the, the, the entire uh, nation was paralyzed by these events that had happened. This was an extraordinarily big deal. And so they're just astonished by that. And they're in despair. But why can't they, they see him? Notice in verse 16, it says, but their eyes were constrained so that they did not know him. It doesn't say that they didn't recognize him. It says that their eyes were constrained. Now, those are two different things. Now, what does the Bible mean by that? Well, the Bible means that 
you can't see Jesus until He discloses Himself to you. You see, and this is a, a struggle that we so oftentimes have. We, we struggle with, with the, 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 the reality of God. Maybe some of you here this morning are struggling, and, and this may be greatly beneficial to you in your, in your struggle to uh, become a Christian. You see, first of all, notice Jesus comes alongside of them, and, and they, don't, they don't hesitate They don't question him. They're not uh, astonished by this. And it tells us something very important that one of the reasons why they, they, they just sort of move on past is because Jesus is so ordinary. He comes in such an ordinary way. You see, if they were walking down the road bummed out and suddenly, you know, there would have been this big flash of lightning... And the sky would have opened up and then this glistening, you know, being would have descended out of the clouds and landed on the road in front of them and said, hey, what about this conversation you're having? It would have been a little different. But you see, he just wanders up in such an ordinary way. He just comes right into their life. See, some of you, maybe you're waiting to become a Christian because you're you're seeking this Damascus Road experience. You're seeking this, this, this unbelievable event in your life to become a Christian that, that God's gonna just show up in your bedroom and, and, uh, you're gonna wake up one night and there he's gonna be standing there and he's gonna say, okay, now it's time. You know, listen, that may happen, but chances are it's probably not. Because for most of us, God just comes alongside us in a very ordinary way. But you see, for, for most of us, God is already involved in our lives long before we realize it. You see, we're walking through life and He's already been beside us. And we haven't realized that it's Him. And, and, and we might be looking for some big earth-shattering event. And what we need to realize is that Maybe He's just walking right beside us. Maybe He's there right now. Maybe He's with you right now. Maybe some of you this morning are saying, I just wish I, I knew Him. I wish I could, could, could know from Him and hear from Him and, and just have a relationship with Him. What you don't know is that He's right there. He's right there. He walks beside them. He eventually sits down to eat with them. And then, and only then, you know, it's a seven-mile stretch and they're walking. Now, scholars believe that this entire text from the very beginning, when, when they first in, encounter, they're having this conversation, Jesus comes along all the way until they get uh, uh, sit down at the meal and eat together. And It's probably about a, a, a three-and-a-half to four-hour sequence. They probably had about a two-hour conversation, which is pretty astonishing when you stop and think about it. But they've spent a lot of time together and then they finally get to Emmaus and they sit down and they eat. And then, after all this time, then they realize who it is that they're sitting in the presence of because He revealed Himself to them. Don't overlook the ordinary ways that God speaks into our lives. Don't overlook that. Because I'm telling you, That for most of us, this is the way we come to meet Jesus right here. And there are some that have these 
amazing stories of how Jesus uh, just invaded their life in such a supernatural way. I, I understand that. And oftentimes, you know, it's those testimonies that we tend to to platform and to put before you. And so it might make you think that, you know, well, that must be how everybody... But it's not. Most of us come to Christ in very ordinary way. So the first word is execution. There's no doubt about His death. The second word is empty. There's no... There's no question that the tomb is empty. They say in verse 21, indeed, besides all this, today is the third day. Notice they say, emphasize the third day since these things had happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. And when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, the the tomb is empty. They know that, yet they're still in despair. They're still filled with doubt. They recognize that the tomb is empty. They even know it's on the third day. But they're despondent. They're in despair. They're, they're frustrated. They're trying to, to figure out what in the world is going on. Now listen very closely. This teaches us a very key principle that we need to see in this passage of Scripture. And that is that a, a wrong or a small understanding of the Redeemer... It's going to leave you in despair also. Listen, listen, verse 20, verse 20 and 21 really are the, 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 the key to this whole story about what's going on with these two disciples. Verse 20, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, but, but. We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. You see, they knew that He'd been crucified. They knew the tomb was empty. They knew it was on the third day. But they didn't understand what the redemption was. They didn't understand what what the Redeemer came to do. You see, they had the, the, the information. They had the facts. But they were missing The big picture. Now, the word to redeem, it means to free from slavery. And so their understanding, I mean, Cleopas, Cleopas, he thought that his biggest problem was his circumstances. In other words, he thought that Jesus had come and done all these great things and built up this movement and that led all the way to the cross and then it all fell apart. He thought that what Jesus was going to do was going to redeem them from their political slavery. He thought that his biggest problem was, was that he needed, he needed freedom nationally. He didn't understand that his biggest problem was he needed freedom spiritually. See, he didn't realize or understand that Jesus had come to set him free from the slavery of sin, not from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. They believed. Now, and I want you to see this. These two disciples were not unbelievers. They were not uh, against the, the reality of Jesus Christ. They were not against the supernatural things that He did. They were not against the fact that He was crucified. And they were not against the fact that the tomb was empty. But they had missed the big picture. They thought, they were hoping, their hope was wrapped up in that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. 
Now, how many people, how many people have come to church, heard the gospel, and in their place of struggle, responded to the gospel, thinking that by responding to the gospel, God was then going to fix their specific circumstances. He was going to take care of their problem. He was going to make their specific pain go away. He was going to do what they thought he would do because of their understanding of God. And so they respond to the gospel that they think that they hear to a God that they think that they know and they make a decision and then a short time later they just disappear. They, they're discouraged. They're despondent. Their despair begins to, because the, things don't go the way they think they ought to go. And here, right here, you see two people who fit right into that category. They in every way had walked along the path that that the that people who knew Jesus the best had walked. That they looked as much like a Christian as anybody. But you see, they, here was the problem. And this is where it, it sort of gets personal for us. They didn't see that their true problem was their sin. You see, for you and for me, Salvation comes at the realization that our greatest problem is our sin. Our greatest problem is not that, that we, we grew up in a difficult situation or that our, we lost a loved one or that we have a, an illness or that we struggle in some way or whatever the case may be. Those are all real and true and, and, and genuine struggles. But they're not our greatest problem. The greatest problem of every man, woman, and child is sin. And this is what they didn't understand. They thought God was coming to fix problems. In other words, to put it into our context, they'd been watching the TV evangelist. That's what was going on here. You see, they didn't understand that Jesus had come to set them free from the slavery of sin. So we've got an execution, we've got empty, and our third word is going to be evidence. And the evidence is just really overwhelming. But notice Jesus' response in verse 25. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones. Now here's, here's a way you want to start a conversation with some people you've never met before. Just here, you, here we are walking along, we meet this guy, and hey, what's wrong? You start telling him, and then all of a sudden he turns around and says, Hey, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? I mean, that's pretty harsh. Jesus is sort of looking at them like, wasn't this clear? Wasn't this laid out for you? Shouldn't you be grasping this? In verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That he didn't just uh, start taking them on some random Bible tour. He didn't just start talking to them about what he, uh, you know, thought about God or start to instruct, give them instruction about some certain set of, of things or five steps to happiness or anything like that. He took them through the Scriptures and he showed that the Scriptures are all pointing to God. And he was 
using the Scripture to open up their understanding. In other words, how, how is it that these two uh, disciples ultimately get clarity on what's going on here? Notice as they're going along and they're answering Jesus about, you know, hey, don't you know what's been going on? All these terrible things have happened and the tomb is empty and Jesus is gone and we don't know what to do. And Jesus doesn't, you know, go, um, guys, uh, do you have any idea who I am? He doesn't uh, tap him on the shoulder or he doesn't say, uh, guys, watch this and then point to a big rock and, and just, you know, tell the rock to, to jump up and run the other direction and then takes off or anything like that. Jesus, he just starts to, he rebukes them and then he starts to, to teach them. Luke is showing us something. That the path to having the veil lifted off of our eyes is through the Scripture. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so Jesus begins to expound the Scriptures. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them and all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That's so important. Himself. Himself. Not, not just the things. He didn't just talk about, you know, here's what's going on and, and here's Moses and, and he's leading the children of Israel uh, across the Red Sea and all these different things. He, he expounded them concerning himself. In other words, he was, he was teaching them that all the scriptures are about him, that all the scriptures are ultimately about Jesus. He wasn't explaining the Bible to them like a textbook or like a dictionary. He was explaining it to them like an autobiography about the Savior. He's, he's explaining to them that Jesus is the priest behind every priest in the Old Testament. That Jesus is the hero behind every hero in the Old Testament. That He's the King behind every King in the Old Testament. He's letting them know that it's Him who the Bible is speaking about in everything that the Bible says. And the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, He doesn't just call them foolish because He thinks they're foolish or He's just calling them that. He's calling them foolish because they are foolish. Write these texts down. They'll come up on the screen. Consider this. This would be profitable for you at some point in the future to look these up. Mark chapter 8. And just revisit these these for yourself. Verse 31. Here's what the Bible says in Mark 8. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And He spoke This word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, I could give you 50 examples of where Jesus had been so open with the fact that Uh, He was going to go, he was going to die, how he was going to die, how long he was going to stay in the tomb, how everything was going to work out. He had over and over, not just through all the prophetic uh, teachings of the Old Testament, but him personally to to the group of people that are right now in Jerusalem in panic mode. But I want you to consider this, Matthew chapter 27. Verse 62 says this, Now on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, 
the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Now, this is after they've crucified Jesus. Verse 63, saying, Sir, now who is this? The chief priests have come to Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, they're talking about Jesus, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception would then be worse than the first. In other words, his enemies understood that he was going to be crucified and that he had said he was going to rise again on the third day. But his own disciples were totally bewildered by this. John chapter 20, verse 19. Here's what John says. Then the same day at evening, notice all these texts, and the same day, the same day, the same day being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now let me just lay this out for you. That Jesus over and over and over, was totally open about everything that was going to happen to his disciples. He told them that on the third day he was going to rise. Don't be surprised. Now, this is going to happen. Then when it happens, exactly the way he said it was going to happen, they're totally bewildered. They're utterly confused. They're trying to figure out, now, how can this be? Now, they've seen him do all these great things, and yet they just can't seem to get their head around the fact that This has happened. The rulers, the elders and the chief priests, they knew that Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day. And so they went to Pilate and said, listen, you need to guard the tomb. You need to watch the tomb. And while all of this is going on, we're talking about now, while the disciples know that the tomb is empty and they know that it's the third day. This is the conversation they had before these two disciples left on this journey to Emmaus. In John chapter 20, where are they? They're huddled up in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Now, wait a second. If if the one whom you've been following has just died. Okay, you're upset about that. You're you're a little bewildered about that. You don't understand. How can He be the Messiah and the Savior if He's now dead? I get that. And then He's buried in the tomb. And you see that. And that's a horrible thing to witness and a very graphic event. It's impacted them deeply. And I'm with you on that. But then after three days... The tomb is now empty when he said it was going to be empty in three days. But we don't see that the reason it's empty is because he said it was empty. Because we're blinded by what we want Jesus to be and not what he says he is. And so after all of that, don't you think that the last place that these guys ought to be is hiding in the upper room with the doors locked? If he's risen from the dead, what are they afraid of? They don't get it. Listen. Coming up with your own Jesus. Making up what makes sense to you about God is nothing new. The human heart is bent toward itself. And it wants to 
make God about what we want God to be. And to make God do the things we want God to do. And so we, just like the disciples. Listen, I'm not, I'm not condemning them. I'm just simply pointing out that they're just like us and we're just like them. That sometimes life starts working around us and I know what the Bible says and yet I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to figure this out. I'm struggling to, to, to deal with, with this circumstance. Listen. We've got the execution. We've got the empty tomb. We've got evidence. And number four, we've, I want you to see everyone, the word everyone. Now go back to the beginning in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and they reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Why is the Savior of the universe having come and lived 33 and a half years on earth after living the perfect sinless life after enduring excruciating uh, temptations and struggles and disappointments and, and, and then an agonizing, horrific death and betrayal and crucifixion after all of that. And then, you know, think about the, 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 the drops of blood pouring from his head in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Think about the agony of, 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 of dragging himself up the road to Golgotha. Think about the crowds jeering and chanting. Think about the thief on one side just screaming and hurling profanity at him. Think about the, the nails through his hands and he's hanging there in, in horrific pain and agony while people walk by and they jeer after all of this and then dying and being buried in a tomb and lying there for three days and then bursting forth in glorious light, bursting the tomb open, moving the stone, coming out, defeating sin and death for once and for all. Why in the world is that guy talking to two random nobodies in the middle of nowhere walking down a dirt road? Why? That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense to me. Unless He is that kind of God. Unless He's the kind of God who lays everything aside for just the average, ordinary nobody. That He loves people so much that no one in the history of the universe had ever had more pressing time demands than Him. And yet, there He is again. Walking with two, two guys on some road to nowhere. That this God would spend time with these two people. What in the world does that mean to us this morning? Do you ever feel like there's just no way you could matter to God? Do you ever... Do you ever just look in the mirror and just think, 
He must be so disappointed in me. Why, Why would the God who is so great and so mighty care about me? What difference could I make? What... What do I really matter? If I disappeared today, how long would it be before anybody even knew I was gone? I think what means so much to me about this event in Scripture is that Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, the one that that we began this day by just singing and declaring how great He is, that God. The one who redeemed me and saved me, forgiven all of my sin, invited me into relationship with Him, adopted me into His family as His Son, who has secured my place at His table in glory, that God whom I owe everything to, and whom sometimes, in the midst of all of that, I doubt. I struggle. I look at circumstances and I scratch my head and I just think, God, what are you thinking here? How how does this work out? And here's two guys who are drowning in a sea of doubt. And where's Jesus? Right with them. You know where God is when you doubt? He's right there with you. He's right there with you. You see, sometimes we say things we ought not say and we 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 try to pretend that Christianity is a, a, a life of just utter and complete doubtlessness. That being a Christian, a Christian ought never doubt. A Christian should just absolutely always know and just always be in a a state of constant and perfect and complete trust. Well, I don't know who that is, but it's not me. And I don't think that person's ever gone to my church. Because we all struggle and we all doubt. And it's okay to doubt. Maybe you're here this morning and you're filled with doubt. You know, I'm glad you're here and you're welcome here and all your doubts are welcome here and all your questions are welcome here. When I walked into church for the very first time 20 years ago, I had a lot of doubts and I had a lot of questions. And I'm so grateful there was people in this very church who sat and answered my questions and talked with me and helped me to to wrap my head around things that I needed questions, I needed answers to. I had doubts. You know, there's two kinds of doubt. Let's, let's talk about it just for a second. There's, there's, doubt, there's a bad doubt, a doubt we ought not have, and it's the doubt that disobeys. This is the doubt that says, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do it because I don't think it's going to work out if I do things His way. This is the doubt that says, I know you're right. I know that what you're telling me is true. I know what the Bible says, but I, but, but somehow that's just not going to work in my situation. It's not going to, it just doesn't make any sense. It's the doubt that says, you know what? It, you, you just don't know what, what I'm going through. 
You don't understand what I stand to lose. If, if, I, if I do what I know God's calling me to do, you don't understand the ramifications of that. And I just can't do that. And that's bad doubt. That's doubt that, that brings about disobedience. It's doubt that says, God, I, I know what you say, but if I do it your way, it's going to get worse. It's doubt that says, you know what, that might have made sense 2,000 years ago, but in my context, it's just not going to work. That is a terrible, terrible doubt. Notice what the Scripture says, for example, in Proverbs chapter 3, a verse that we all learn, most of us at a very young age. The Scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust. Well, what's, the, what's not trusting? Well, leaning on your own understanding. You see, don't, don't lean on your own understanding because that's not trusting. That's, that's a negative doubt because if you'll trust Him, if you'll just do what doesn't make sense to you, what you can't see, how it's going to work out, but if you'll just go forward in your doubt and all your ways acknowledge Him, He'll direct your paths. That passage of Scripture goes on to talk about if you're not wise in your own eyes, you know, if you just, if you just, if you just think, well, God, I know in my wisdom it doesn't make sense to do this, but you, this is what you say, and you don't depart from the Lord, that it's going to be well with you. It's going to, it's going to be well with you in your bones and in your inner spirit. It's going to be a blessing to you. You see, bad doubt says that I know better than God. That's a bad doubt. It's a, it's the doubt that makes us tell a lie at work. Because we have a family to provide for. And if we tell the truth, we might lose our job. And God doesn't want me to lose my job. And if I lose my job, then how am I going to provide for my family? And so for the sake of being a good provider for my family, for the sake of, of, of protecting my, my, the people that I love that God's entrusted me with, I'm going to lie. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna hedge the truth a little bit. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell, what I say is gonna be the truth, but I'm not gonna fully disclose what I need to disclose. You see, that's, that's bad doubt. That's just trying to circumnavigate your way around what God's already said and what you know to be true. See, when you ask for God's wisdom, when you say, God, will you, will you show me what I need to do? And then God speaks to you. And then you disagree with it. And then normally, here's my experience has been that people in this situation, then when I tell them, here's what God says you need to do. And they look at me like, Pastor, seriously. So I open the Bible and I say, here it is right here. And I'll oftentimes say, I know this seems crazy to you, but I'm telling you, here's what God says you need to do. And I believe with all my heart that if you do what this book says, if you do what the God of the universe says, then He will be faithful and He'll walk with you. And you know what invariably happens to people who are caught up in this disobedient doubt is they leave and they go to someone else. And they say, what do you think? And then if that's not what they want, they go to someone else. And they're like, they're like a toss to and fro between two waves, bouncing off of all these things, trying to, to get things the way they want them. James addresses this. 
speaking to people in James chapter 1 who are in a time of great trial and persecution. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Well, that's good news. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now, that's oftentimes the scripture that somebody will quote to you when you say that you have doubts and they say you ought not doubt and you ought to say, well, you ought to read the next verse. Verse 7, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, what that scripture is talking about is people who don't want to listen to God. And so they're trying to, they're, they're not coming to God and saying, God, tell me what to do and I'll do it. They're saying, tell me what to do and I'll consider it. I'll think about it. I'll analyze it. I'll figure out if that's good for me. If not, we're going to have to go. We might need to go Old Testament on this one, God. I'm not sure. That's bad doubt. What about the second kind of doubt? Doubt that obeys. You see, there's a good doubt. There's a doubt that plagues my heart. A doubt that plagues many of your hearts. A a doubt that, that we find ourselves in a place where we're confused. Where we're troubled. Where we're even afraid. Where we're... Maybe we have absolutely no reason to be. We know what the Bible says. But... In a sense, we're in a room with the door locked, huddled down in fear of the Jews. Yeah. Because we're afraid. Because we just don't, we, we, we just don't understand and we're troubled and we're confused and we, you see, when I know what God wants, but I doubt and that I can't see how it's gonna work, but I do it anyway, that's good doubt. It's when you you look at a situation and it's already gone by. And you you realize that you're in the clear, you're past it. But you know what God want you to do and you just think man this is this can't be good there's so many bad things that can happen there's there's everything that can happen is going to put me in a worse situation than i'm in right now but you do it because you know what god says i want to tell you There's been many a times that I've sat with a family, that I've held people's hands, that I've shed tears on their floor, and my heart is so troubled. And there's a lot of things about a situation that I'm a little confused about. And that I know what God says. And even as I'm telling them. In my heart, I'm saying, God. I don't even know how this is going to work out. I don't even know how this can possibly. Pan out. But when we walk together in faith. And we step out. And we say, God, I I trust you. I trust you. 
I, I, my heart doubts, but I trust you. God here reveals himself. Listen, he goes into the very room where the 11 are hiding away with the door locked. They're afraid he goes in. God didn't stand outside with a megaphone and shout up to the, to the upper room and say, Hey, losers, God has not given you a spirit of fear. Get out here. What are you doing up there? He didn't, he didn't barge in there and say, you know, I, I was going to bless you. I was going to send my spirit to empower you. I was going to use you to, to reach the world with the gospel. But you know what? I've changed my mind because you've disappointed me sitting up here with doubt. Don't you know that believers that followers of me should never have doubt? He didn't do that. What did he do? He went right up in there to him. Shame on us when we act like we ought to not ever doubt that we never get bewildered or confused. That's not true. You know it and I know it. It's hard. It's hard. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you've never walked in the darkness of a deep, deep trench. It's hard. Notice what happens in in Mark chapter 9, and then we'll finish. In Mark 9, just an interesting place I want to draw your attention to. This is where a man brings his son to Jesus, and he says, you know, my son is sick. Well, he brings him to the disciples because his son is having convulsions, and he's foaming at the mouth, and he's passing out, and he's getting rigid, the Bible says. And the disciples try to heal him. They try to cast the demon out of him, but they're unable. And so he goes to Jesus, and he says, will you have compassion on me? Will you help me? My son is sick. And Jesus says, how long has he been sick? He says, since birth. And when my son, this is my son who I love and he's sick and I need your help. Jesus, will you help me? Verse 23, Mark 9. Jesus said to him, If you believe all things are possible to him who believes. Oh, now that sounds like, uh-oh. Man, you better, you better believe fully. You better You better muster. You can't have any doubt in this situation. That's what Jesus must be saying. And the man responds to him in the next verse. Immediately the father, the child cried out and said, with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And you know what Jesus did? Healed his son. It's hard. It's hard. Holding your... Dying child in your arms. Let's not fall into the trap of trying to act like, oh, it's all, it's, it's okay, it's good, everything's fine. I fully grasp Romans 8.28 in that moment. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's good doubt. That's why I love this passage. Four lessons we can take home from the road to Emmaus and then we're done. Four things real quick. No explanation, just four things for you to consider. Number one, nothing's too messed up for God. I can't tell you how much this passage of Scripture means to my heart, to a bunch of Broken down doubters who should have known better, who had no reason to be winding down the road like they are. And God comes right up among them.
Look at, look at the God of heaven. He's, he's on a, he's on a mission and he's bouncing around to all the doubters and all the weak people and all the sufferers and all the strugglers. You know who he doesn't go to? The people who think they got it all right. He doesn't go near them. It means a lot. To me, it ought to mean a lot to you this morning. Number two. The second lesson is that God is at work long before we notice Him. I mean, they're walking for hours. Jesus... Oh, if I could just know what he said. If I, if I had a, if I had a recording of that conversation. Man, what a sermon. He goes, he expounds all the, I mean, I'd never preach another sermon without checking that one first. I mean, every time I'm, I'm, I'm drawing Jesus out of the Old Testament and I'm spending hours upon hours exegeting a text, looking at all the nuances of it. If I just knew what he said, I wouldn't need any of that. They heard all of that right out of the mouth of God. And he's just walking with them. And he's patient. And he, he doesn't he doesn't go, you know, I mean, how long does he go? And he just goes all the way till they get home. And then he even tries to leave and say, I was going to go farther. And they're like, no, no, we want you to stay. He's like, okay, I'll come in, sit down. Boom, then I'm going to reveal myself. And it's just amazing. Isn't that how God works? Listen, the scripture says that before the foundation of the world, God was already at work in redemption. So listen, every time someone walks down this aisle and professes Jesus as Lord, God's been at work long before that moment. He's been walking beside them down dusty roads and he's been teaching and working in their circumstances and revealing himself to them. The third lesson from the road to Emmaus, God shows up even when we doubt. Just leave here today and know it's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to not understand. But just make sure in the midst of your doubt, you obey what God has called you to do. And number four, God's solutions are so often not what we expected. I mean, isn't it true that God has a plan and a purpose that we just simply can't understand and we have to, we have to fight against our tendency to pull the supernatural, sovereign mind of God into something that we can grasp and comprehend. And I'm telling you, that's a mistake. It's a mistake to say on one hand, somebody that you care about, there's an accident. And suddenly, someone you love is hurt in an accident. You get a phone call and the ambulance is heading to the hospital and you drop everything and run outside and jump in the car and start going. And and the whole way down there, you're just praying and saying, God, please, 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 God, don't let anything happen to him. God, why is this happening? Please, please, please. And then you get down there. And as you're there with your loved one, a nurse comes in. And and maybe by this point you realize they're going to live and you look at the nurse and you say, wow, she is gorgeous. 
And you strike up a conversation. And she becomes your wife. And for the rest of your life, you would never say, why did God let that happen? You'd say, oh no, there was an accident. And that's how God brought me to the hospital. And that's how I, I met her. And that's how God worked all that out. And so for the rest of your life, you would, you would talk about that accident as if it was a good thing. But if you didn't meet your future wife, if there never was a, 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 a reason or a purpose that you could understand, don't come to your own conclusion that, oh well, God just failed me that day. He wasn't there that day. It didn't work out that day. Just because you can't see His sovereign purposes, you have to just know that He has declared that He works all things together for good. Not for everybody, but only for His children, those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so, Christian, know today that in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your concern and your fear and your your, your misunderstanding... God is God and His Word stands strong and He is the God of the Bible and He will do that which He declared to do and you may not see it. But that doesn't change His faithfulness. Don't let your doubt lead you to disobedience. Just grab hold of it, hold tightly and walk forward in faith. And do what he says. Let's stand, bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you this morning for helping us to see and to realize the reality of your character and your love for people. And that, God, how can it be that you would die for just an ordinary person like me? God, here you are, walking on a road for hours with two men that we know nothing about. And you declare to them, you reveal yourself to them. Lord, this room is filled with people that you've revealed yourself to. And oh, how glorious that is. And oh, how grateful we are That you've done that. And Lord, don't let us get sidetracked in our doubt and in our concern. This world is a world of struggle and suffering. It is tainted by sin. But your resurrection defeated death and sin. But Father, until we take our last breath here in this life, we don't fully take hold of all that that is. And so now we struggle and we doubt. And Lord, help each and every child of God here today to know that it's okay and that you come alongside. You you didn't send anyone else, Lord. But the Bible says that you came alongside them yourself. And you'll come alongside us. And we thank you for that. And Father, for those here today who are apart from you, Lord, they know all of the circumstances and situations that have led them to this moment. God, reveal yourself to their heart, Lord. Show them how you've been walking beside them. For days, weeks, months, even years. 
and that this is their time to come, come to a loving God who is so gracious and so kind. And in the midst of not knowing everything, not knowing how God will use you or what exactly this journey is all about, but just trusting that you are the God who holds the universe in your hands. And I place my trust in you. And wherever you lead me, wherever you take me, I'll go. Father, bring salvation in this time. Give clarity and courage to those in need of it today. To come and to publicly say, I am a Christian. God has saved me. And I need to follow Him in believer's baptism. I need to be baptized. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I want to plant my life in this family and grow in Christ right here amongst these people. God, give us courage and clarity this morning. Thank you for helping us speaking to us this morning. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. If you would like to come and kneel at the altar and pray, I invite you to come. I'm here. Pastor Rod and Pastor Brian are here. We'd love to pray for you, encourage you, minister to you in any way we can. You come. Don't let anything stand between you and this step of obedience in God.